Daniel Boone was a man, yes, a big man, with an eye like an eagle and as tall as a mountain was he. Daniel Boone was a man, yes, a big man. He was brave, he was fearless, and as tough as a mighty oak tree. From the coonskin cap on the top of old Dan to the heel of his rawhide shoe. The ribbonest, roaringest, fightingest man the frontier ever knew. Daniel Boone was a man, yes, a big man. What a boon, what a doer, what a dream come a truer was he. He's the rootinest, tootinest, fightinest man that the frontier has ever seen, huh? That's a bold statement, isn't it? We'll find With out if he looks. skin hat. Which, by the way, breaking that early, never wore it. Oh, he oh. never had a coonskin hat? Never wore it. Here's my problem. So, apparently they made a TV show on the man, right? Mm-hmm. Why is everyone just happy? They're just all like, yeah! Because it was We're this- living out in the middle of nowhere! It was the everything ni- is fine. It was the 1960s and everyone needed to be happy on TV. And that theme song, you sent season six. Yeah, it lasted a while. I'm going to guess a lot of people who know Daniel Boone who are listening to this likely know, first heard of him from that TV show. All the way back, I believe in the 60s or 70s. I believe it was the 60s. Somebody will correct us. That's what the internet is for. Say that uh, Daniel Boone is very well known. Daniel Boone, he was a man. The song said it. As always, I know the name. But there you go. Almost nothing else. <laughs> well, I didn't either going into this. So, welcome to Ranking 76, where Matt and I are continuing to rank the most notorious and infamous Western figures in American history from 1776 to the end of the 1800s. I am Eric. Hey, I'm Matt. How's it going? And today, we are talking about Daniel Boone. He is kind of the OG of the Wild West, arguably the first true American folklore story. We can say George Washington, yes, he is the original, like, Rags to Riches, Ben Franklin, yes, but Daniel Boone is kind of his own category. However, it wasn't until he was about 50 that he became well-known. John Filson, a teacher, may have been the first stereotypical Easterner wanting to stumble into the West. People who made fun of him, played jokes, took advantage of his own excitement. Filson may have been motivated uh, to find a figure to cover because he put went all in and sold his settlement for land in Kentucky, uh, thinking of all the success on a potential book that he may earn about Kentucky territory. After annoying anyone he could talk to, he wrote a book called The Discovery, Settlement, and Present State of Kentucky. It was more of a reference guide than anything. It was something not untrue, but more folklore than it was nature. The book Filson published wasn't very popular in America, but it did find an audience in Britain, which was translated then to German and French. Filson never saw much of the success from the book, however. He ended up speculating and going back into teaching until he was killed by Native Americans in 1788. It wasn't for a while later when a man named Trumbull edited the book down to make it read more like a diary. And it hasn't been out of print in 200 years since. Boone 
maybe feeling a little entrepreneurial, endorses the book, probably with some of those cartoon dollar signs in his eyes, and said it was, quote, every word true, probably not looking anyone in the eye while he was saying it. No, 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 no. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. I promise. promise. Tell the truth. Just don't. Where's the check? Who was this man, Daniel Boone? He was a man. He was born in November 2nd, 1734. We're going a ways back. Probably the earliest figure we can cover. He was born into a very large family. He was one of 11 children. His parents were busy. Yes, they. what else are you going to do in 1734? Right. right. <laughs> raise crops and raise children and raise something we can't talk about to make it a PG contest. His father was a very strict man. Uh, to teach lessons, he would beat his sons until they submitted to him. Now, I'm not sure exactly which professional wrestling move he knew, but once his sons tapped out, he would then explain what they had done wrong, and then they would have a conversation about it. And if it really seems like you're meshing two very different uh, parenting philosophies, step one, I'm going to beat the crap out of you. And step two, let's talk about our feelings. I don't know which one I would hate more. Daniel may have been worried about his one of his father's conversations when he had to cover up the death of a horse. One night, I presume a very bored Daniel saw a sleeping cow. Daniel sneaks out of the house, saddles up one of his father's workhorses, gets on, and looks towards said cow, probably eyeing the tiger going on in his head. Rising up. Out to the streets. <laughs> he rides at the horse at, four ga- at full gallop, gets near the cow, just as Daniel's about to make a majestic leak over the cow, it moves. The horse clips the cow... Daniel flies off, dusts himself off, everything seems to be okay, until he looks over at the motionless horse that broke its neck over the jump. How do you cover up a horse's death? I mean, a cat, a dog, a small animal? Ah, no. Uh, Have you seen the horse ran away? Oh, no. He removes the saddle, puts it back in the barn, and heads back to bed. I can just picture him tiptoeing. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Don't wake up, don't wake up. Or do you think it was like, if there was anyone with him, that was awesome. I'm sorry about your horse, man, but that was great. Wild Bill better not have seen that. The next morning, his father was left very confused on how a horse could break its own neck. Because obviously the cow had moved. There was just a horse with a broken neck. (laughs) Just dead in the field. Just there, left with a lot of question marks. One of the few other stories to come out of his childhood is two young girls were trying to be funny, I guess. They dump fish entails all over, over a sleeping Daniel trying to take a nap outside. Daniel's response? He straight up punches them in the face. (laughs) Different time, different time. <laughs> Isn't it, though? <laughs> I mean, unpleasant. I would be angry. Straight up punching someone in the face? Maybe not me. 
it's not the worst thing we're going to hear. <laughs> if there is one thing we do know about Daniel's childhood is that he loved hunting. And by the time he was 15, he is said to have been the best hunter in Pennsylvania. He would disappear for days at a time and return with weeks worth of food for his family of 11 children plus and parents. That is an incredibly, that is a lot of food for one teenager to bring. One incredibly accurate, truly honest story is that Daniel was on the hunt when he was attacked by a jaguar, where he calmly shot it through the heart. Pennsylvania being notorious for its jaguar population. Yeah, I hear stories about that all the time these days. He did learn one of the time, sometime during year, I don't know where else to fit this in, but he cohabitated with Native Americans. He would adapt aspects of their dress. Uh, this would come in handy later in his life. Again, did not wear a Kingston hat. He would have been very upset at that stereotype. His family moved to North Carolina when his, for his family to establish a settlement. His family continued to farm. Boone, however, never enjoyed it. He would wait until the rain, and then he would just run out to hunt from the field. Hunting was a way of life for Boone to get over and to help support his family for a living. Fur trading could bring in a lot of money. It was said that Daniel took down over 90 bears in one season. Jesus, what was that? Were those freaking woods just covered in bears? Just a bear tree. Yeah, he just goes there every couple uh, every couple of days, just shake it. One falls out. <laughs> Hits it over with a musket. Yeah, that is true, because you're shooting with a musket. It's not like those things are exactly action repeaters. You have one shot. <laughs> Now, these aren't grizzlies. This isn't like the bear that attacked uh, Wild Bill, but... Uh, it's still quite a bit. It's still a bear. <laughs> right. Uh, also hunting deer, beaver, otter, and muskrat. This is actually where we get the term buck, or for when you would bring in a deer skin for a dollar. There's your fun fact. Boone, already having a reputation for an excellent shot, would enter, would enter competitions. Getting so confident, he would even step up to the line with little preparation and would fire his rifle with just one arm. And if you know how big a musket is, that's a hell of a feat to win a competition with one arm. During this time, he's growing up during the time of the French and Indian War. He does fight for very briefly in the militia. He sees action in what is probably the most well-known battle in the French and Indian War at the Battle of the Mahangahela. This battle sees General Braddock killed. Boone is a teamster who is being held back between behind the lines as a wagoner, making sure that basically the horses stay there. His job is to essentially sit there and have bullets whiz past his head and not move. Right. Keeping the horses safe. Keeping keeping the courses there. (laughs) Safe is another thing. Most of the men say, screw this and get the hell out of there. Boone, to his credit, or stupidity, he does stay. But it sounds like they were just surrounded by woods and you would just see musket fire. You didn't know if it was friendly fire or friend. You didn't know where it was coming from. They were just whizzing all the way past you. That would make for a long day. Yes, it would. 
Daniel returns from the war sometime around 755 and is approximately 21 years old and is of marrying age. He meets a young woman named Rebecca, and they meet in one of two ways. Story number one. Young Boone would oftentimes hunt at night in what was called fire hunting. A companion would come along with the hunter holding a torch or lantern while they stocked the creek rifle at the ready. Uh, they would look for essentially the gaze of a deer. Anyone who has ever approached a deer at night and sees the reflection of their eyes understands what they would be looking for. The deer would stand frozen, seemingly hypnotized by the light, the reflecting glow cast by their eyes as the target for the rifle. On one such occasion, Rebecca, attempting to herd her father's cow, is out searching for strays when she was caught in the woods at dark, losing her way. She wades through the shallow creek. Suddenly, she sees the glow of a torch and the reflection of a rifle barrel. At that same movement, Daniel takes aim at what he believes are the reflections of the eye of a deer. But they're unlike those of any deer he had ever seen. This is almost romantic, isn't it? He holds fire long enough for Rebecca to run the hell away from the man pointing the rifle at her. She runs in terror through the woods. Boone pursues her, finds her trail, and leads her to the Bryan homestead, her family's homestead. Where, quote, there he meet a panting maiden, thunderstruck at how near he had come to destroying this woman, who he immediately knows will become the object of his love. Daniel is said to have never gone fire hunting again. Dad, how did you meet Mom? Well, funny story. Uh, I almost killed her. Almost killed her. I thought she was a deer. <laughs> right. The glow of her eyes it just, it just spoke to me and said, deer. Uh, so apparently this tale is kind of just a frontier general story. So a lot of couples seem to have met during fire hunting. So I don't know if there's just a lot of attempted murder going on in the backwoods of North Carolina, but there you go. It's probably taken from a native American story. Um, I actually prefer the second story, which is Daniel and Rebecca meet at a cherry picking, which actually seems normal. That seems like a normal thing to meet someone at. So Daniel and Rebecca meet at a cherry picking. The two were sitting underneath a tree. Daniel was very shy and nervous. Stuttering through a conversation, he pulls out his knife. He then throws the knife over and over a few feet sticking into the ground. So he's taking the knife, throwing it into the ground and picking it up. Over a time through the conversation, and after a while, Rebecca holds up the apron she was wearing and sees there are multiple holes in her apron. Daniel would continue the story, claiming that he did it on purpose <laughs> to test his future wife's temperament. After not showing anger at how he now destroyed the apron, Daniel knew she was the one. You like that story better. I mean, at least in the first one, he was accidentally almost killed her. It sounds like this one he was trying to. I'm just going to keep throwing my knife at you. Just, just to check how mad you get. 
it's not that big a deal. I was just doing it to see how mad you'd get. I like the idea of him trying to, I feel like he's, so he's 50, he's like 80 years old. How did you meet mommy children? Well, I, well, we were sitting underneath a tree and I kept throwing a knife, but I did it on purpose. I wasn't nervous. I was nervous. I was cool. I was stabbing the, I was stabbing the apron and I made hole after hole, but it was a test because I knew what I was doing. That's how I take it. A very nervous man trying to impress someone while being a stuttering idiot. I take it as story one. I almost killed your mom on accident. Step two. I was trying to kill your mom on purpose. He does need better stories. I'm not going to lie. Those are not, not the greatest. However, as things do in the 1700s, they have a pretty short courtship and they end up getting married shortly after. In the mid-evening on their wedding night, such as tradition, the bride and groom's attendants escorted the couple into the loft and tucked them into bed, which had to be horribly awkward for everyone involved. As Daniel and Rebecca are lying together for the first time (laughs) downstairs, they hear the crude jokes that are traditionally told to newlyweds calling up. Where is Black Betty? The men would call out, drinking from their whiskey. I want to kiss her sweet lips. And then they would offer toast. Here's health to the groom, not forgetting myself, and he's to the bride. Thumping luck and big children. They heckled them all night. And cheered. For thumping luck and big children. You can do it! Do it! Woo, 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 woo. That's, that's all I picture. It's just a bunch of a bunch of frat guys. Yes. You got yeah. it yet? You, you're done? That's can all. Can we come up? Can we come up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, they had a thumping good time. Because Daniel and Rebecca immediately start a family. They end up having, I believe it was eight children, but I don't have that right in front of me. But a child is born quickly after the nine months is up. Just giving you a hint of legitimacy. But Daniel and Rebecca do actually adopt some of the parents of a brother who had died of tuberculosis. The family move after native warriors attack nearby Fort Dobbs um, and the surrounding countryside. Boone decides to move his family to Virginia, but he has his eye on Kentucky, which seems to be this Garden of Even style place for him in his head. He always wants to go back to Kentucky. But being married did not quell Daniel's love for hunting. However, he wasn't always prosperous, and it was difficult for Daniel to sometimes support his family. He was in debtor's court on more than one occasion. Maybe he loved hunting so much because he loved the solidarity, or he pursued the hunt. Uh, One night, a Cherokee warrior woke him, but Boone was able to charm him and actually accompany the tribe um, on a later hunt. He did seem to have pretty good respect for Native Americans, which is kind of refreshing. He never seems to hold a grudge on them, and that will become a big deal later. He views them more as equals that he can work with. 
rather than their rivals that are destined to fight. Now, there's going to be a fight later on, but it seems like it's more man-to-man, and it almost seems like a fair fight with them rather than later in the cent- the next century where Native Americans just get lied and their land taken from them. This seems to be more of a square fight. Well, it kind of makes sense, though, because he was a big hunter. It sounds like he loved the wilderness. So. Right. Native Americans were angry at just how wasteful the fur trade was, and more importantly, not wanting Americans on their land. Now, America as a country is not a thing yet. It's before 1776. Boone and his brother-in-law, John Stewart, uh, are on a hunting expedition. They have their camp, their central camp, and are hunting and are wanting to trade more. A local Shawnee tribe show up and essentially want to take their supplies. So they're out hunting. They see the Shawnees. The Shawnees want to kick them out, but the Shawnees want to take their supplies because Daniel and John Stewart are outnumbered. They're essentially, they have to follow. They have to do what the Cherokees are asking them to do. To buy time and to warn the others that the natives were close and wanted to secure the horse and furs, Daniel takes the the native to smaller caches around the camp before, instead of actually taking them to the main camp where they kept all of their, their furs. They also make as much noise as they could to alert the men that were in the camp. The natives soon caught on and demanded just be taken to the main camp, probably obvious when they were clapping their pans together and warning like, Hey, we're coming. We're coming. Uh, <laughs> Oh, I really want to wait for dinner. How about you? Yes, exactly like that. They now get to the now abandoned camp, which Daniel must have think, oh, yes, it worked. We did it. Only to realize the men left and they didn't take any of the goods. Oh, crap. They must be in trouble. Uh, Better go. Run, go. The natives did not harm Boone or Stewart, but they did take all of the loot. And what I'm guessing was a fairly passive-aggressive passive aggressive sign. The natives gave the men supplies for their journey home. The chief telling them, quote, And if you are so foolish to return, the wasp and yellow jacket will sting you severely. Keep this quote in mind. The wasp and the yellow jacket is the band of tribe. It's not the actual a wasp and a yellow jacket hornet. In a move that is equal parts bravery, stupidity, and arrogance, Boone and Stewart don't leave. They actually follow the Shawnees to retrieve their campmates and supplies. The next morning, Boone woke up to another Shawnee with a gun pointed at him, probably looking at him like, are you kidding me? They now captured Boone and Stewart, go on a seven-day march. Once on the banks of the Ohio, the men were told they would be released when the Shawnee crossed. This would protect the Shawnee from the Americans, what they viewed, thievery. Before they could cross, Boone and Stewart break free. They take a few guns and they hide. The natives do little to chase them and leave in the next morning, assuming These men just are going to go home now. A couple days later, 
They find their campmates as the men are packing to go home. The campers never want to return again, and they are forced to come back home with no loot. Boone and Stuart do go hunting together again a couple years later. One night, uh, they're camping by a river, and it swells so large with the rain, Stuart did not return. Boone waited and worried over his friend. Looking for him, he found Stuart's camp, but no Stuart. It wasn't until 1775, two years later, when Boone, on another expedition, found human remains of Stuart's initials carved into a tree. It is thought some of those Shawnee warriors caught up with him. The yellow jacket strikes. Daniel returns home. And just to give you how an idea of how long these long hunts were, Rebecca runs out to Daniel crying, but not of joy. And when asked, what's the matter, Rebecca, Daniel got, uh, Rebecca replied that Daniel was gone for so long that they thought he was dead. Rebecca took comfort with another man, and now there's a child. Oh, jeez. How long was he gone for? Well, at least nine months. <laughs> and, enough to, and enough time to uh, think he's dead. Uh, so Rebecca's you either. Know, you know, Rebecca, uh, I gotta go out for some milk. Uh, I'll be back here pretty soon. It's a hell of a milk break. Right. I think one of them lasted like two years. I'm going to assume it's this one. When they say long hunts, they mean long hunts. Do you know Daniel's response to there's now a child? What? Quote, oh, well, the race will be continued. Whose is it? <laughs> Rebecca, oh, Rebecca replied, your brother's. I was, I was going <laughs> to say it was his brother, wasn't it? Maury. Just showed it up somewhere. Yeah, you are the father. You'd love it. There are multiple versions of the story, all with a slightly different twist. It's the story seems to want to show off Daniel's cool and calm demeanor rather than focusing on he essentially abandoned his family for a hunting trip for about two years. But it's fine, I guess. <laughs> Oh, well, I guess the race will be continued. Whose is it? Sure. That was his response. So Daniel wants to move again. And this time a man named William Russell uh, is taking a bunch of men in an expedition towards him. It's 1773 and they want to establish a permanent settlement in Kentucky or Kentuck is what Daniel, I believe, would call it. He's finally going to Kentucky after a couple years. They set up a settlement named Castle's Wood. But they are received by a welcoming party of Shawnee. The party of, war of warriors open fire, hitting Daniel's son James in the hip, which paralyzes him. The warriors, clearly wanting to send a message for the party to go no further, the men were tortured. Fingernails were torn out, Multiple cuts to the body. James was struck with the death blow from a tomahawk. This increased native attacks on Castle's wood to make the settlers go away. Daniel obviously wasn't there when his son was attacked, but he does return a few months later. 
saw evidence that animals were digging up his remains, Daniel then had to exhume his son and rebury him, covering the graves with some stone and ash. During a very short-lived war called Lord Dunmore's War, Boone is promoted to captain, uh, mostly by acclamation than any military qualifications, but by the time Boone was placed in charge of anything, the war was essentially over. Lord Dunmore's War is a very minor war on the build-up to the American Revolution uh, that essentially Lord Dunmore doesn't want colonists to go into wilderness, to go into native land. Uh, it backfires because Americans are stubborn people. Um, very brief war. Boone fights in it briefly, and life goes on. Financially, things are not going well for Daniel. He returned from hunting trips with more debt than he has started. Because of this, he gets being brought into debtor's court. Luckily for him, a fairly wealthy man named Richard Henderson was looking for was looking for someone to explore the place he just bought. Henderson wanted to call it Transylvania. Today we would know that land basically as Kentucky. He owned a large majority of the state of Kentucky. Henderson gained land by making a deal with the Cherokee, which sounds legitimate because rarely do you actually buy land from the Native Americans. The problem was the Cherokee are in a territorial dispute with the Shawnee, and I'll give you two guesses what a large section of the Transylvania land purchase was. It wasn't Cherokee land. It was Shawnee land. Now, this does give Henderson just a hint of credibility when it turns to owning the land. He has just enough legality to do it. Now, legality, the Americans are the colonists at this point. They don't care. They have a title that says they own it. It doesn't matter which native tribe uh, claims the land. Daniel, frustrated that the British would not allow colonists to, to Kentucky, needs a very little push when Harrison asks Boone to explore it. Boone is essentially given two choices, that he can go to debtor's prison or explore the land. And if there was an opportunity for a land for a long hunt, it wasn't much of a choice for Daniel. It's about 1773. It is the same year as the Boston Tea Party, just to give you an idea where, where we're at. Uh, the, the main source of... This biography is a book by John MacFarger. Uh, it's kind of the book that's on Daniel Boone. It was written in the 80s. It takes a lot of the folklore out of him. He claims that there is little evidence between a relationship between Henderson and Boone. However, in another documentary I watched, uh, The Men Who Built America, Frontiersman, the show shows Henderson making a deal with Boone basically at court uh, for Boone to scout Kentucky in exchange for what, instead of going for Debbie's prison. Don't really know. I'm going to probably go with Farragher's book just because it's a little bit more sourced. And I think uh, Frontiersman is just looking for ratings, but there is some conflict on how well they know each other. Boone does go into Kentucky and he does establish what becomes known as the Wilderness Road that will allow up to 300,000 others to follow Boone into Kentucky. This is essentially, it's through the Cumberland Gap. It is essentially what he is known for. He is, when he says opening up the West, this wilderness road 
is kind of opening up into the West, even though we don't view Kentucky as the West. It's the the first page stepping into it. Boone establishes a new site, and just guess what he calls it? Booneville. Boonesboro. Boonesboro. Hey, that has a nice ring to it. I just can't get over how bad Americans are at naming things. Right. You know what? Uh, my name is, uh, my last name is Johnson, so let's call it Johnsonville. Johnsonville. There's York. What do we call, what is this land we're on? Oh, New, New York. Better. It's better, York. We're really bad at naming things. Actually, we're very literal at naming things. We have no imagination. Keep in mind that the land that the land Henderson bought was technically in Native American territory. And by technically, I mean it was Native American territory. Not wanting to see any settlement, any permanent settlement, Boonesboro or otherwise, Native Americans attack at a higher and higher rate. This does, this does give us Boone's earliest surviving letter. Quote, After my compliments to you, I shall quaint you for our misfortune. On March the 25th, a party of Indians fired on my company about half an hour before day. They killed Mr. Twetty and his Negro and wounded Mr. Walker very deeply, but I hope he will recover. On March the 28th, as we are hunting for provisions, we found Samuel Tate's son, who gave us an account that the Indians fired on their camp on 27 day. My brother and I went down and found two men killed and sculpted, Thomas McDowell and Jeremiah McFeeters. I have sent a man down to all the lower companies in order to give them all the mouth of the Otter Creek. They were ambushed. This news, because obviously it's a letter, gets out. Obviously, it has a, native, a negative effect on settlers willing to move into Kentucky. Henderson almost has a nervous breakdown because he has all of his money wrapped up in his proposed Transylvania. Seeing all of his money invested, that is worthless if no one is actually willing to go buy the land he just bought. In July 14th, 1776, the dangers become very personal for Daniel. His teenage daughter, Jemima, with Betsy and Fanny Calloway, take a canoe out. And after a strong current takes them down the river, where a few Cherokee stouts came out and took control of the canoe. The girls first confused the natives with someone that they think they knew. Once the warrior made a notion with his knife, suggesting that they come very quietly, the girls knew they were in a bad situation. Boone is napping at the time and is alerted immediately and is ready to use his particular set of skills. And a search party is gathered and set out. They were taken. They track until nightfall, but at the end of night one, the girls are still in Cherokee hands. Jemima, obviously being the daughter of Daniel Boone, knows how to handle herself in the woods. She takes every advantage she could. They would fall, scream, at any instance they could. They would even mock in pain. 
one warrior who recognized Jemima and her sister to be Daniel Boone's daughters. Once Jemima confirmed that she was indeed Daniel Boone's daughter, the warrior is to have said, well, we have done pretty well for Boone this time, and laughed, which had to make her feel oh so great about what she was walking, what she was being taken to. The next day, the Cherokee, wanting to move very quickly, are frustrated when the girls pull up on vines, break branches, and clear trails to leave a trail for their father to follow. They pretend even how to not ride a horse and would even pinch it so the horse would buck and they would fall off. Boone's search party are about 10 miles behind on the, at the end of day two, but they find signs of the, tra- of the girl's trail. Day three, the natives confident that Boone would not find them set up camp and start to hunt, not realizing that ne- Liam Nielsen was actually hot on their trail. Daniel's daughter, Betsy, gets her hair pulled and then throws hot coals inside the native's moccasin. (laughs) The warrior jumping around in pain to the delight of the other warriors. The girls, however, start to lose hope. And Betsy, about to cry herself into despair, sets her head down on a log, turns her head, and notices her father was about a hundred yards away in a belly crawl signaling for his daughter not to call out. Then what would probably really annoy Daniel, a shot was fired. (laughs) A warrior soon grabbed his belly and was falling back into the brush. Jemima then shouted, That's Daddy! Those who have played as plenty of Assassin's Creed just get how annoyed Daniel must have been to have the perfect cover blown by an idiot shooting a gun. (laughs) The natives scatter. The girls are able to reunite with their father. Uh, Jemima would tell about how the natives actually did treat them pretty well, uh, never harming them. Despite tales of the natives' attempts to take advantage of them, uh, they start tending the warriors and them actually have like a little bit of an, I say an intimate moment, but it's more like a, a pure moment where they're kind of braiding each other's hair. They weren't treated badly is the gist of it. Uh, despite of what that story is kind of turned into. Obviously with a TV show and then just your run-of-the-mill racism going through the 1800s of making Daniel Boone a legend. During this time, the Revolutionary War actually starts to build up. Daniel, because of his previous service, is promoted to colonel. Uh, Boone's fight in the war was less fighting the British, and it was more fighting the Shawnee. After multiple fights with Chief Blackfish, the settlement of Boonesboro are in desperate need of food as Native Americans destroy their crops. Boone is even shot in the ankle and is forced to command his defenses with a sling and crutches. Desperate for salt and food, Boone and a group of men are forced to set out. After shooting a buffalo, Daniel looks around and notices he is surrounded by right around 100 Shawnee warriors. Boone abandoned his horse. This is also in the dead of winter. So he abandons his horse and starts to run away briefly and is captured and is taken to Chief Blackfish. Boone recognized the man who had taken him prisoner in his first exploration in the Appalachian. Do you remember when they were captured and say, do not return? 
pasting and the hornets pasting. It turns out there was a translator named Captain Will that Daniel recognizes, and they have a nice little moment. Startled by the greeting, Captain Will was confused and explained, Do not recollect taking two men prisoner eight years ago on Kentucky River? For a moment, Will looked puzzled. Then suddenly, his eyes brightened up and he broke into a wide smile, grasping Boone's hand and said, How you do? How you do? <laughs> he echoed, said laughing, and said it appeared that Boone had forgotten about the warning the Shawnee was in the Yellow Jackets. How you do? How do you think I'm doing? <laughs> it's funny because they told him not to come back, but then they're like, Wait, hey, how's it going, bud? Long time no see. This idiot again. You remember that warning? You don't, do you? You Oh, you're so dead now. Remember when you were clapping pans thinking we weren't pickering? weren't uh, You weren't doing a distraction for us? We knew. Boone is taken to Chief Blackfish, as I said. It turns out the son of Chief Blackfish may have been one of the captors that took Boone's daughter. One of the two that were killed during the rescue mission. Through a translator, they were told that they want revenge for the killing of another chief. The Shawnee wanted to simply just destroy Boonesboro. Boone, in what is going to be the most controversial decision he's going to make, negotiates a deal to surrender his men as prisoners of war. So not only surrender his men, but Boonesboro in general. He would just turn over the camp. Boone arguing that the winter would be very hard on them and they would just give up the fort in the spring rather than just do an attack and take the fort now. Pick whatever motive you want for it. I tend to think Boone was trying to make the best of the situation. He knew that if the natives attacked that moment, the camp was going to get taken and the permanent settle would, would be destroyed. At least he is buying himself a winter. Right. And yeah, trying to probably save a bunch of people too. I mean, if they took them over, they would die. I mean, yeah, he, he doesn't. Winters are not generous. I mean, it is Kentucky. It's not a, from what they're used to. Yes, it's not great, but he just, he's buying time. He doesn't have, he doesn't have a good solution. Um, the next day, Boone leads the Shawnees back to the camp, and under threat of any motion of hostility would result in a massacre. The men of the camp surrender and are now surrounded by a hundred Shawnee warriors. After a brief council where Boone was present, the warriors and black and blackfish consider killing the men. After all, Boone was warned over a decade ago, uh, almost a decade ago, of not coming back to the Shawnee land. And here he comes back. And not only back, he comes with more people. Why not make a statement and massacre them all to warn off anyone else who dared to enter the territory? For whatever reason, Boone is allowed to speak. He says... Brothers, what have I promised you? I can much better fulfill in the spring than now, when the weather will be warm and the women and children can travel from Boonesboro 
to the Indian towns and all live with you as one people. You have got all the young men to kill them, as has been suggested, would displease the great spirit, and you could not then expect future success in hunting nor war. If you spare them, they will make you fine warriors and excellent hunters to kill game for your squaws and children. These young men have done you no harm. They were unresistantly surrendered upon my insurance that such a step would only, would be the only safe one. I consented to their capi, their compulsion on the express condition that they would not that they should be made prisoners of war and treated well. Spare them, and the great spirit will shine upon you. And where I'm assuming. A long pause happened, and Daniel probably sweating the entire time. A vote is taken. 59. Vote for death. 61. Vote for life. That is your modern day vote right there. That. Two votes. 49% to 51%. Real close. Too close. Boone believed that Blackfish allowed him to speak because he and the other chiefs did not want to break the agreement. But it's only speculation. In reality, they probably shouldn't have let Boone to speak because when it comes down to two votes, he very well may have swayed two people. So he needed to give the speech of his life, and he did just enough to save himself and his and Boonesboro. The men taken into captivity are treated well uh, with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, in the moment, however, they had no idea if they were going to be killed, placed into slavery, or adopted into the family. Uh, adopted into families. At one point, they are forced to run a gauntlet. For those who don't know what a gauntlet is for Native Americans, it's really the same everywhere, but you line up people uh, basically in a row. You have them run through and you are... Equip them with clubs, rocks, whatever you have, and then who's ever running the gauntlet simply has to run all the way through them and try not to get beaten, fall down, or killed. And if you survived, it was... Congratulations, uh, you get to live. Essentially, yes. Uh, never mind the horrible beating we just gave you. Can you imagine if you accidentally tripped over your own feet or something? I think you're just dead then, because then they just attack you with clubs and rocks. I think you are just dead. I don't think you could get up. No, I think that was the point. If you fall, it's over. Like, <laughs> I don't think. Yeah, it was done. Chief Blackfish actually adopts Boone into his own family. In one tense moment, however, Boone was questioned about the death of Blackfish's son. Again, the one who was killed when Boone went to rescue his daughters. When asked if he led the party, Boone said that he had, and he had actually fired on the kidnappers. This might have been one of the mortal shots, but, quote, many things happened in war. And his negotiator and his interrogator pondered his reply, Boone thinking that he might very well be killed on the spot. Blackfish slapped Boone on the shoulder, said, brave man, all right. When we are in war, you kill me, I kill you. All right. 
This guy has unbelievable luck. I was just thinking that, like, how has he escaped death so many times? And just seems so friendly. Like, he doesn't only escape, he escapes it in the friendliest possible terms. Like, Blackfish and him were enemies, but then they finally meet, and then they're like, oh, yeah, we're friends now. Become par- Literally become part of my family. Boone was given the name Big Turtle. Daniel, again, is adopted into Chief Blackfist's family and even takes on a native wife. This is all over the course of a winter. Back at the fort, not really knowing, and probably just assuming, the men that were taken were dead in slavery or just in prison or imprisoned. The camp struggles through the winter. Again, Rebecca, assuming her, her husband is dead, for the second time, moves. Daniel is actually able to escape his captors, returns to Boonesborough alone, only to find his daughter Jemima to greet him. He then prepares for battle and what was sure that was surely coming. Boone preps Boonesboro and, quote, gives any well-grown boy a furnished uh, small rifle and a pouch. They literally need everyone to defend Boonesboro. Despite... All they have, they have 60 men and another three dozen settlers, largely being women and children. It isn't long before the Shawnees show up with supplies or are seen in the area. Boone is able to write a letter to Virginia hoping for reinforcements and that the Shawnees would choose a siege instead of an attack. Boone, under suspicion, the men in his own camp, plans a raid on a small Shawnee party. Boone takes about 30 men, half of the fort's defenses, to lead an attack. On the second day, 12 of his men realize this is stupid, and they just head back to Boonesboro. After a successful ambush, however, Boone is able to steal a few horses. Boone's reputation is partially restored, Boone then waits for the Shawnees and their war party of over 400 to make their way to Boonesboro. 60 against 400. I like those odds. Yeah, it's going really well. Uh, I should probably mention, uh, Boone doesn't exactly return to Boonesboro a popular figure. Because he just abandoned them. Well, I mean, he was taken. That's what they think. That's what they think. But they do find out that he basically sold the camp. Now, whether they believe the argument of he had literally no other choice for him to have set made the decision that they're going to be prisoners of war and they were going to be taken to be Shawnees uh, didn't make him very popular. On September 7th, 1778, a siege of Boonesboro starts, which had to make everyone take a deep breath because 400 versus 60, an all-out attack would have just ended Boonesboro. A siege just buys them time. Through a translator, a blank, a black man named Pompey demands that the surrender be given. He reminds Boone that he had surrendered the camp when Boone was originally captured. Probably every man looking at Boone with a side eye. Pompey made it more awkward when Chief Blackfish started calling for Boone, his adopted son. Pompey yelling, 
Your father wants you. <laughs> Boom. Dad's <laughs> home. He wants to speak to you. The rest of the men, excuse me, what? He's your what now? Uh, come again. Why? They sold us, and then you got adopted into their family. Hmm. You don't say. Hmm. Boone is forced to walk out to meet the party. However, he's well within the range of the Boonesboro riflemen. In an emotional confrontation, a teary-eyed blackfish asked Boone, My son, what made you run away from me? Boone replied, Because I wanted to see my wife and children. Well, if you had asked me, I would have let you come. Before Boone could argue with this, another chief, Chief Molantha, I believe is how that's pronounced, spoke speaks up and says, you killed my son the other day on the Ohio River. The raid that they just did a couple days before. Boone lied, probably with a playful finger on his lip, no, I have not been there. Melantha yelling, no, it was you, and I tracked you to this place. Blackfish reminds Boone of the promises he had made when he had handed over the letter. Uh, Blackfish reminds Boone of the promises he had made over the winter. Blackfish then hands over a letter from a British officer named Hamilton that is addressed to Boone. The letter made reference to Boone's agreement to surrender the fort and promised a pardon and safe conveyance to Detroit for all of the settlers. The British would honor claims of the lost property and maintain an officer's rank if they joined the British service. Should the Americans resist, however, the governor could not be held responsible for the resulting bloodshed. Blackfish then passed Boone a wampum belt. Here are your options, he told Boone, pointing to the belt. At one end was Detroit. The other end was Boonesboro. The rose of the colored beads represented the past that connected them, and it was for Boone to decide which one they would walk together. The red, said Blackfish, was the war path and the Indians had come along. The white path was one that they could take together to Detroit. They showed that the black, there was a third path that was in black that showed that they would be put to death if they did not surrender. Boone, probably buying some time, looking over his shoulder to the tree line, really hoping those reinforcements show up. Anytime. Boone returns to camp, not looking forward to the conversation that laid ahead of him and what he had to explain to his men. Well, back in the fort, they, the men had two decisions to make. They could surrender or they could fight. Boone would not make the decision himself. When other young men were using words such as, he would kill the first man who proposed surrender, the decision was essentially made for everyone else in the camp. Now, again, that's not Boone saying he would kill. That is other young men saying, we're not going to give up. Listen up, guys. I'm not telling you what to do. <laughs> I'm really not. But if you choose surrender, we're going to kill you. It's just death. So, I mean, it's either die or 
fight to the death. I mean, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I will murder you in your sleep if you get I know what I'm going to do. I I know what I'm going to do. I'm on a side. I've decided. what What do you guys think? I bet Boone was like, huh, this is interesting. Huh, this is what I came back for? I should have just stayed adopted. So Boone has to meet the the Shawnees still sitting outside. Boone and another man, again, are looking for time to buy some more time, saying that they need time for the men in the in the fort to decide. Saying, quote, many chiefs in the fort need a decision, and that decision has not been made. This argument is strangely effective on Native Americans because most tribes, the chief requires basically a majority vote to do anything. So the natives sit and wait. Boone probably getting really annoyed at the tree line, wondering where in the hell the reinforcements are. Seriously, guys, any freaking time now. (laughs) Finally, time was up. When Chief Blackfish demanded an answer, Boone was called out. Still looking, guys. Come on. The people have determined to resist surrender as long as there is a man living. Seems very formal for a death sentence. Blackfish, not expecting this answer, proposes another meeting. Daniel thinking, yes, we'll kill more time. Absolutely. At this final meeting, Blackfish proposed that the Shawnee would leave for the fort surrender and assurances they would leave in six weeks. Seems like a pretty good deal. Think they take it? No. Not a chance. This was rejected almost immediately. An annoyed Blackfish then proposes a new deal. That the Ohio River would now be the new boundary between the colonists and the and the Shawnee. This is hilarious. Okay, so Blackfish wants the land. He wants the colony. He's like, we're, I'm going to kill you or you can leave. Well, we're going to fight. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, how about this? How about this? We take this land. We'll give you six weeks. No, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. How about the river? That way is ours. And, and this you is just your, have this. And you can stay. See, it's, let's just go back to the original deal. Uh, you guys are here. <laughs> hey, we're not trying to step on any toes. Hey. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's funny you say that because the book then goes into this last part clearly didn't happen. Why would the Shawnee, whose sole purpose of attacking Boonesboro was to kick them out, suddenly give in and say, well, now we'll make this new boundary? It didn't happen, but... Somebody said it happened, so they had to run with it. But there's no way that, one, Chief Blackfish has the authority to do it. And that, two, he would ever make that proposal. Over 400 men he has. They only have 60. But, hey, why not? Right. I mean, unless those walls are real guarded, they had to have known. Really, really respected Boone. I mean, he is Liam Nielsen. He killed 90 bears. Right. Oh, yeah, true. And and not his wife. In the dead of night. Because of her eyes. Because of her eyes. When it became clear that the Shawnee were now 
attempting to take the men in the meeting as prisoner. When one Shawnee approached a man named Richard Calloway, the man pulled away. And this was the hostile enough motion for someone, likely one of Boone's hidden riflemen in the fort, to fire. A fight broke out. Blackfish wrestled Boone and was thrown to the ground. A nearby warrior swung at Boone with a pipe, catching him in the back and opening a large gash. When asked how the Americans were able to escape, Boone believed that it was the marksmanship of the fort that saved him. Several of the Indians seemed to have been hit in the first volley. Also, the Shawnee were uh, distracted when Chief Blackfish fell to the ground, many believing he was shot. As they all gathered around Blackfish, it allowed the Americans or the colonists to, to leave. The siege of Bloomsboro now begins. Day one sees heavy fight. Many cattle and livestock are killed, forcing the settlers to butcher and preserve as much as they can. Jemima, Daniel's daughter, uh, running to keep the men up on ammunition, is nearly hit. Another man counted 14 bullet holes shot through his coat. On day two, it becomes clear that the natives do not have artillery and the, Mer- and the Americans had survived the first round of fighting. The settlers now noticed the Shawnee were preparing to tunnel under the walls, each night attempting to put fire to them. The men were frustrated that their rifles would be useless at firing against Native Americans who were digging a hole, so they started throwing rocks at the Shawnees. The annoyed warriors would yell back in a phrase that does not seem to exist today, come out and fight like men and try not to kill with stones like children. When the old and women warned the men that they shouldn't be throwing stones because it might hurt some of the Indians and they will get mad and take the revenge. The men burst out into cynical laughter and began tossing rocks over the wall by the dozens, chanting, don't throw stones, don't throw stones. (laughs) Eleven days into the siege, death of two settlers and a lot of trash talking between the lines. The natives again attempt to set the wall's forts on fire. However, riflemen were able to kill more Shawnees that night than at any time during the siege. Heavy rain takes out the fires. The next morning, riflemen looking at the Shawnee camp saw it was abandoned. The tunnel collapsed under the heavy rain. As the settlers start to leave the fort, They collect 125 pounds of lead from bullets fired. Boone writes to Rebecca, but soon after the letter is sent, Boone finds out that he had been court-martialed for treason. (laughs) I can imagine the letter to Rebecca was like, Rebecca, where you at, girl? Yeah, where you at? Where'd you go? I'm not dead again. Did you hook up with another brother of mine? I mean, seriously. He had 11 of them. Four charges were pressed up against Boone. That when he was captured, in order to save his own skin, he had handed over the salt makers against their consents, although at the time the Indians were not going towards the men. Charge two was as a prisoner 
He had consorted with the enemy and in Detroit did bargain with the British commander that he would give up the people of Boonesboro. That I don't think is actually true, but there is a letter saying that he would give up letters from Boonesboro, but Boone did negotiate the surrender of the fort. He also negotiated on the third charge that on his return, he had weakened the garrison by pursuing a large number of men to leave the fort and go away over the Ohio River on a foolish and perhaps treacherous uh, conceived raid. And finally, he had exposed Boonborough's leaders to an ambush by agreeing to take all of our officers to the Indian camp and make peace out of sight of the fort. It was not the facts that were in dispute, but it was their implication. Boone was in favor of the British government, he declared in the court. All of this conduct prove it, and he ought to be broke of his commission. Boone's defense was that he had surrendered his men to keep the Indians from going into Boonesboro, where the fort was in bad order and the Indians would take it easy. He thought that he would use some stratagem, and he had told the Shawnees and the British tales to fool them. As to the charges regarding his leadership, the outcome of the siege ought to speak for itself. The officers retired to deliberate and were quickly back with a verdict. The court-martial, to quote, the court-martial descended in Boone's favor, and they at the time advanced Boone to a major. So not only was he not court-martialed, he was actually promoted. It was not simply an acquittal, but a vindication, and by any means a promotion to Boone's fellow officers found a way to applaud his leadership. So, you'll be happy to know, Daniel travels back to his wife, Rebecca. Then Daniel made the bravest declaration I'm assuming any man has ever made to his wife, and tells Rebecca that they're going to head back to Kentucky. <laughs> I thought it was going to be, ah. Uh... Uh-huh. <laughs> it was your brother this time. But instead, hey, Rebecca, come on, let's go. Hey, you know that horrible event that you just went through that you thought I died? Let's go back. Let's do that again. Your daughter almost died. Hey, it's no big deal. Come on. It's true. It's good now. What's come the on. worst that could happen? What's the worst? We've already, get, the worst has already happened. It'll be fine. Boone returns back. Only he doesn't go to Boonesboro because it turns out he's fairly unpopular, though. So he travels back and sets up another place called Boone Station. Original. It is. I mean, he really wanted to name something after himself. Uh, not much of interest actually comes out in this time period. He speculates some more land claims. Uh, a Native American attacks are less frequent, so I guess he kind of won that little battle. Uh, there was kind of an amusing story, so most of his life from here on out is going to be a lot of land speculation, and trust me, dear God, we're not going to go into that section of his life because that was boring as hell. One story that woke me up, he was surveying an area and the story is called uh, The Bottle of the Old Mahangalila. So, suddenly, uh, so he's surveying the air, area when suddenly the horse snorts and Boone stiffens. There are Indians near, he whispered. Be silent. Acting under his instructions, the men build a fire, 
arrange their blankets and pack it in a way to make it appear as if the whole party lay sleeping and quietly walk their horses into the night. As they leave, Boone turns to a man on still turns to a man still holding a bottle of whiskey. We must do something with the whiskey, he declares, for if we catch if the Indians catch us and get drunk, they will kill us all. Nearby was a very distinctive tree with a hollow fork, so they hide the bottle of whiskey inside the tree. Turns out, Native Americans went by, everything was fine, everyone lived. A decade later, it occurs in dispute about the boundaries over a piece of property. And as the original surveyor, Boone is called to verify the corners. With the attorney on both sides, he walks the line and spies and looks and sees the old tree, which a keen woodsman eye recognized despite 10 years of growth that had filled in the hollow. Boone asks them to cut it down. If the whiskey is found, the question is settled. Inside, of course, they find the original whiskey bottle in the tree. Boone wins the case, and the spec any disses land. The Revolutionary War ends in 1783. And just to give you a reference where we're at in the story, the audiobook that I really listened to was about 13 hours long. We just listened to about 12 and a half of it. And Boone hasn't met Filson yet. So this is going to come really quickly. Essentially, Boone become, Boone moves around from place to fate. He meets with Filson. He publishes his book. Uh, really makes the legend of Daniel Boone. Daniel, Daniel never has a lot of money, but the book does help. But what he did in order to make money is... He was a surveyor. He was a land speculator. He's not great at it. He's too nice, and it gives a lot of weight to his children and then just his wedding presence. He's in constant court battles and complex survey overlapping, like the tree story. He goes in and out of debt, really, for the rest of his life. At some point, he owns a tavern and a general store, is elected to the Virginia legislature in 1791. At this point, he kind of enters cranky old man territory. When he's living out in the wilderness, he notices a family is about to move in 12 miles away. A very irritated Boone is to have went into his house, even threatening to move because someone was building in his backyard. 12 oh, miles my. away. <laughs> yeah. Wow. There's another story that's very similar to that. It was like basically acres away, but yeah, he did not want anyone near him. Come on, they're building ugh, they're building right in our backyard. I can almost hear them. So much land. He was given massive amounts of land for Boonesboro, like as a gift, like and also with Henderson, he gave him large amounts of land. Um Really, the game in the 1780s and 90s, if you were a a man of wealth, you would buy up as much land and speculate, thinking your investment would get paid off later. Um, a lot of them don't work. George Washington had a lot of land. It didn't always pay off for him um, just because, like you saw in Boonesboro, it's hard to get people to move there, and it's hard to get people to move there while you're still alive. So 
sometime that land didn't necessarily do you that well. So we just uh, said 1791. We're jumping to 1813. Rebecca, after 57 years of marriage to Daniel, dies. Daniel enters a depression that lasted for weeks. Family members saying that after Rebecca's death, he had lost sense. He had a sense of finality. He's finally able to pay off all his debts, including the descendants of men who were already dead. So if he owed someone debt to someone who had died, he would pay the descendants. Um, but for the most part, he was ready to die. As he is dying, Daniel asked to see his coffin. He refuses medicine, saying that this was his last sickness. He told the family that his about his wishes for his funeral plans and to be buried next to Rebecca and die saying, I'm going home now. My time has come. It is one month short of his 86th birthday. That is old. That might, that might be high score. I don't know how much older they're going to get in our figures, but that's high score. And that, for the most part, is Daniel Boone. Good old Danny boy. Okay, let's go rank him, shall we? Absolutely. Round one. Are you satisfied? This is our biography round. Matt and I will be judging them as if they were, we are buying a movie ticket. A good score will be a positive 10, and the negative score will result in if we didn't like, quote-unquote, our movie. What did you think of Daniel Boone? I'm conflicted. It started off, his story starts off pretty interesting. I feel like he just is a guy, a man that just made a lot of bad decisions. Like what? Like starting uh, Boone uh, in Kentucky. Boone's uh, Boonesboro. Boonesboro, Boonesboro, yes. Uh, He keeps... I feel like he he took for granted their warning. I mean, they let him off once. Mashani. He was also a very lucky man, right? Right. And then he became, I guess, the son of uh, Blackfish. Yep. So that was another luck based mm-hmm. thing. But then he like uh, made decisions based on himself, right? Um, who goes on hunting trips for years, right? Um. But overall, he, I, I feel like nothing, I mean, the man was in debt all the time. I feel like he was just, a, I, I feel like he's a shyster in a way where he's just trying to make like shady deals that just don't pan out. I don't think he was shady. I think he just didn't know. Like, he's in debtor's prison. He likes to hunt. He thinks he can support his family by hunting. Um, if he didn't bring back, if he didn't bring back anything from hunting trips, he essentially had to take out a loan. If he couldn't pay back right. the loan, he just he just made bad yeah. financial decisions. So I don't think he was trying. It seems like, by all accounts, he was a very honest man, uh, very straightforward, 
uh, liked being alone, clearly. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> very, very alone. There is a large, I kind of glanced over it because it's not the most entertaining podcast listening. Uh, a large section of the book by Mark David Farragher is him going into the woods, hunting, singing by himself. Um, he really liked listening to Gulliver's, or uh, not listening, reading Gulliver's Travels and the Bible to where he would make landmarks off of Gulliver's Travels. It just seems like he liked being alone. There's a few stories of um, like the man 12 miles away in his backyard. He just didn't seem to like people. Well, and that makes sense too. Like for someone that loved hunting as much as him, he probably found like a peace in the wilderness where he he just wanted to be him in the land, right? Yep. Uh, which is also very interesting that he kind of gave up when Rebecca died. I mean, right. Well, he's also in his seventies when she dies. Right, but so what? Do you think that he was just old and he just said, eh, "Yes, time," or do you think it, the the catalyst was Rebecca dying? I mean, it can be both. I mean, it 57 years of marriage is a real long time. <laughs> and I mean, she did father many, many children. How many did he have? 11, 11 I believe. He was either born into a family of nine or 11 and his children were vice versa. But he also adopted a lot of his, like his brothers who died of tuberculosis. He did adopt his sons. Oh, well. And I mean, overall... Overall, I think, um, would I buy a ticket to see a man that just likes to be by himself? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, maybe, because some of the stories seemed pretty interesting. I would have liked to, you know, mm-hmm. um, seen the whole uh, Boonesboro uh, ordeal play out mm-hmm. and the siege. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give his background about a six. Hmm. I went back and forth on this one in my mind. Because I, I almost took it as a, depending on um, what side you're on, every positive action he took, if you look at it from the Native American side, is a negative action. He opened up the West for Americans, clearly not great for native Americans. Um, Boonesboro, the siege, um, same thing. Every positive action we as Americans view him has the equal opposing reaction. If you just look at it from native Americans point of view. Um, I was tending towards just a zero. Cause I felt, I felt nothing. Um, I'm not going to lie. The last after Boonesboro, boy, does that book dry up a whole lot. It's a lot of land speculation and he's in court for this line being over this survey line. It's just, it was brutal. So basically he lived a pretty mundane life after. Essentially. If it wasn't for Filson, I don't know how well known he would be. I will get into this in legacy, but is he worth a TV show? (laughs) Essentially it's four stories. So I am going to go a little bit less. I was arguing for a zero in my head, but I think I'm going to join with three. Okay. You've convinced me. I'm kind of surprised. You've convinced me. 
Okay. Second round, be sure you are right, then go ahead. This is our morality round. Again, positive score, positive 10. Negative score is negative 10, uh, depending on if we think he was a good or a bad egg. Matt? I think he definitely was a good egg. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he had any ill will towards anyone. It wasn't like, you know, um, Billy the Kid or um, Wild Bill because he you didn't see him fighting anyone. Um, I mean, even when he was, quote unquote, fighting with Blackfish, standing up, I mean, he killed his his uh, uh, Blackfish's Blackfish son, son, right? Yep. Um, while he was saving, but that was while he was saving his daughter. And what did he say? War is war, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm gonna go pretty high on his morality. Um, uh, but then again, wait, hold up, T for time, T for mm -hmm. time. Uh, I mean, he also did, you know, try and sell. Uh, you know, Boonesboro and the people without, you know, so much as a second thought. So I'm going to go ahead and say probably like, uh, I'm going to go ahead and g give them positive still for the most part. I'm going to do five. I was originally thinking that he would be really high in this category until I saw the line of he worked the field with a slave, with his slave, and I was like, oh, God. And then it just reminded me, oh, now I need to deal with slavery. <laughs> like, what one of the nice things about this podcast is a lot of the characters aren't rich enough to own slaves, so we can kind of skirt by that ugly, ugly history. And here it was, the third person in, and it, it's right there. Uh, I think it would have been very easy for him to hate Native Americans. And he, I think he viewed them more as equals or as like, if we're going to fight, it's an equal fight. May the best man win, which is definitely not the story of the next century of what happens with Native Americans. So I'm going to go a little bit higher than the five. I think I'm going to stick with a seven, mainly because you can't get a 10 if you literally own a person. Right. And as, as far as Nate uh, taking three points off for owning a person doesn't make me feel great, but I also don't know how to score that either because morality would tell me that's a negative 10. But if that's our precedent, nobody is scoring above. Nobody is scoring positive in this round. So I'm going to stick with a seven and just feel really icky about slavery. All right. Round three to hell with the consequences. Was he crazy? Was he clever? Negative 10 would be super crazy. Positive 10, super clever. What did you think? I think he's pretty clever, you know? I mean, look at how many times he stalled out, right? I mean, they had it in there. They had it, the bright idea of making noise, stomping around. I mean... That was his daughter. His daughter. Yes. Yep. Well, I was going to say even his daughter, mm -hmm. you know... Um, uh, broke branches, made paths, you know. Uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and say uh, I'm gonna go ahead and say maybe a six. Six. I think I don't know if being I don't even know if competent is the word if that makes him clever. He's charming. Does 
being charming make you clever? I think in a way it can. You can use it to get what you want. Because he would have done that with initially with Jon Stewart, who's also so stubborn. So like crazy going after the natives after you after he after they take your stuff and then you go and attack and you're going to go try to take your stuff back. That's not positive, clever score. That's stupid. I think you get some cleverness points for boot like delaying what seemed like the inevitable for Boonesboro and just kind of going along with it and formulating a plan. Um, I don't think you're far off with your six. I think I'm going to go four to go slightly different. I think 10 is a decent score for him. Okay. Now our scores are locked in because Daniel is positive. We are going to continue adding points. If he had had been negative from here on out, we would be subtracting points away from him. And our next category draw. Basically, if we were in a draw in a shootout with Daniel Boone or a duel with Daniel Boone, how screwed are we? We're only offering points from zero to 10. Zero being we'd be able to talk our way out of it. We'll be completely fine. 10 being we're basically dead and we know we're dead. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, from all the talking that he did, I'm going to go ahead and say zero. I don't think he really, you know, was a fighter. I'm not, really don't. I'm not scared of Daniel Boone. I'm not going to lie. I would still lose the duel and I would still lose it handily, but it doesn't seem like anyone made him angry. When your wife can come at you and say, I slept with your brother and there's a child and you're like, yeah. well, that's cool. Ooh, whatever. Cool, bro. Right. <laughs> I was gone, you know. I was gone. I don't blame you. It was a while. I don't. This is my fault, really. It's my fault. All right. That is an overall score of zero. Legacy. How well is he known? Zero to ten. Going off of what I knew about him, which was literally nothing, minus a couple. Apparently, he has a, a really popular TV show if it can last six seasons, um, maybe even more. I think it was um, more. It lasted a while. I'm gonna go ahead and say, uh, just based off of so my experience with him and not seeing him anywhere else, or not even, you know, going four years through a history degree. Um, I'm gonna say four. I like it. I have no other points for it. I don't think he deserved the TV show. Uh, He's a wilderness guy. He's fine. I don't hate him. Personally, I think I would like him. But he he has a legacy. I think he's one of the more well-known characters. But does he deserve it? I'm not sure if you actually look at what he actually did. So I'm fine with the four. I think that's fair. Our bonus round of death. Do they have a cool death story? Uh, absolutely not. No, <laughs> he died of old age. Is literally how anyone wants to go. Yep. Um, so I'm going to go zero. Yep. Um, nothing else to say. He died of old age. Good for him. Final round. It's interesting that it was so, he was so old, though. It really was. That is pretty interesting. 
Especially for that age, yeah. Uh, counting coup. Confirmed-ish kills divided by 10. This was a tough one to look up. <laughs> because... Somewhere right around, what, one, two, maybe? Three. If you count the two, there is one story I kind of skipped over um, where a Native American was rushing at him. It was completely in self-defense, and Boone basically snipes him, and he kills him. Uh, Not the most exciting story. It was hard to fit it into a narrative. Um, And then... Basically, I'm giving him bonus credit for the second men that died when his when his uh, daughter was taken because it said there were two men there. But I had to go look that up. Normally, I can just do a Google search and I can find Wild West magazine or I can find some legitimate source that says how many they killed. And him, Google almost looked at me like, what do you mean? Daniel Boone doesn't kill like what? No. So. Three is the number I'm going with, and one of those is kind of a bonus point. That brings his overall score to 39.3. Oof. He did not score too high, did he? Uh, not great. His best round was morality. Be sure you are right. His second one would be clever, but... It's not the most impressive score we've had. So with that, we need to decide if we want to draft him. Matt? Heads. Tails. So I get to pick if I would like him on my team. And I'm going to draft him. Mm. Yep, I'm going to draft him. Because why wouldn't we? Once you pick, once you pick, you can't go back. We're making that established? Okay. Well, everyone remember this recording. Well, I mean, you saw my reaction of a fist pumping in the air. I didn't want him on my team, that's for sure. You, You didn't have to. I'm going to draft him because it's the third week, and we have 20 roster spots to fill, so... Anything he might get dropped, um, maybe, maybe in a couple years when we're doing the tournament, maybe we completely change our mind on Daniel, or we need to look back at the notes of this episode to realize what the hell he did. But that is Daniel Boone. Any closing thoughts? I will say. I think the la- the earlier part of his life was pretty. He did a he he did some he did some things, but then he got into you know the old boring, mundane, normal life. It's true, he turned into just, us, is what happened. Right, and unfortunately, just he's not. No one likes a story about normal life, right? I know it. <laughs> it's not what we signed up for, right? <laughs> Dang you for living a normal life. And marrying a wife for 57 years, which is what we all kind of look for. But yeah, so that's that's Daniel Boone. Matt, where can people find us? As always, um, we do have an email. We'd love to hear from you. We will um, read all your emails, read all your feedback. Um, the email is ranking76pod 
at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at ranking 76 podcast. You can find us on Facebook. Oh, we are a group. Um, just search ranking 76, the American West. And please, if you like this podcast, subscribe, leave us a rate, a rating. We'd love to, we love to look at that. We're uh, definitely open to criticism or well thoughts, well wishes. Um, we have a long way to go. So obviously as we continue, we will get better. Yeah. Uh, I did also want to, cause I don't think we did it in the first episode, but, uh, the intro you heard before this was actually made by Rob from Totalis Rankium. So a big thank you to him for making that. He absolutely did not need to do it. And we absolutely love it. So thank you, Rob, for making that. So if you have not, uh, not listen to Totalis Rankium, either the Roman emperors or the American presidents, go give them a listen. I also want to give another shout out to the presidencies of the United States podcast, because Jerry Landry has been a huge help in helping us. So with that, I have nothing else to say. Have a great couple weeks, and we'll be back. Uh, Our podcast is bi-weekly, so as always, I'm Matt. And I'm Eric. Goodbye.